Welcome to The Neuropod, the podcast for neurodiagnostic professionals. Our mission is to provide you with information that can help you provide better care for your patients. Knowledge is power, and more knowledge can lead to better patient outcomes. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Jason Meyer, your host for today's show. Today we have Dr. Rich Vogel, Vice President of Clinical Services at Allied Managed Processes, better known as the practice partner for RTNA. Dr. Vogel is a past president of the ASNM. I've known you for so long, I'm going to call you probably Rich the whole time through. Are you okay with that? Absolutely. That works for me. Okay. Okay. I'd like to ask is professional courtesy is certainly deserved. But anyway, Dr. Vogel is current president-elect, and he is a past president of ASNM. And I know, Rich, that you are double PhD and maybe more. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, okay, on that point, I, I do have two PhDs, one in neuroscience and one in psychology. And I mostly like to go by Rich, so I appreciate the professional courtesy. Maybe that shows a little bit about my personality. If I'm going to tell you something about me, I tend to be kind of a shy person. I'm not the type of person to necessarily walk up to a stranger and talk to them, but I very much welcome people to come and talk to me, which may sound kind of odd because I'm very comfortable being in front of a thousand people giving a lecture. For some reason, I get energy from that. But I'm just, at the end of the day, I'm just a really nice guy who... Uh, enjoys talking to people. I'm just not the kind of person to start the conversation. And I'm from Philadelphia. I always like to tell people that, but I live in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can validate the um, a couple of the comments there. You're you're definitely approachable. I've known you. I'm not sure how long, but it took me a long time to even learn that you were a PhD in in neurophys. So uh, you're approachable. You've always been rich as long as I've known known you. You've been rich, Vogel. So yeah, you're approachable and you do a great job speaking. So for a shy guy, yeah, I can validate both those points. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on the podcast, by the way. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm glad that you could join us. In fact, even before I uh, listened to Stimulating Stuff, which you'll listeners, you'll find out what that is in a minute. Um, but before I even knew that you were doing that, um, I was excited to have you on just with your experience with ASNM. We've covered a lot with Asset. Um, we're going to be broadcasting from the uh, exhibit hall this year just a week from now in Orlando. You know, we've done the, the uh, asset stuff, and it's exciting to have you representing, not representing ASNM, but being, you know, part of the industry, the neuromonitoring side of the business, not just the EEG. So we're delighted to have you. You're our first from the, the monitoring side. It's an honor. Thank you. You know, Rich, I was going to tell you uh, a long time ago, I knew that you did your blog. Um, we're going to get into that in a second. And before blogs, before podcasting, before you know, texting even, we had chat rooms, which was internet-based communication where you could post something, um, people could respond to it. And then I think they evolved from that into live chats. But I started something called the Neuromonitoring Lounge. And the funny thing about the Neuromonitoring Lounge was that it was a guy that knew nothing about neuromonitoring. I just made electrodes and was were peddling those. Um, so I really didn't get it to move anywhere. But shortly after that, it's, uh, what was it called? The Neurologic Lab, I think, that you started? That was your blog that came along short, I think it was shortly after that, because I don't think they had blogs going um, when I was doing my thing. But someone was encouraging me. It was either you or some guy named Townsend. One of the two of you are like, hey, keep this thing going. It's awesome. But I didn't know what to do with it, because I'm not in the science. And, and, and all the listeners know that. So tell me, how did you get into the blog? I thought it had a pretty good 
uh, listening base or watch base or read, I should say read base. What happened to it? Tell me about the blog. So it was called neurologiclabs.com. I still to this day don't know why I called it that. I think the lab piece was because starting a blog for me was an experiment. There wasn't really much, as you alluded to, there really wasn't much on the internet at the time about neuromonitoring. There was one other website and there was some chat rooms and that was it. I started it because I had access to a lot of information in terms of articles and literature and I was reading and I was teaching and I was starting to lecture, but there's a lot of people in the field that don't have access to information. And as we know, not everybody's able to attend conferences yeah. and maybe they can't attend webinars. There weren't even webinars back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wanted yeah. to- Rich, put a date on this for me real quick. How long ago oh, was wait. this? Because there's I mean, people that think this, may think this stuff always existed. It didn't. It was a lot different for us 20 years ago. But how long ago was this? I mean, this was 2014 when I started it. Okay. So not I that, think not that, 2015. No, yeah, not that long yeah. ago. I, th I was expecting, man, that neuromonitoring lounge thing I did was, I think it was probably 2005 or six. Just yeah. if, if, I had yeah. to, if I had to guess. But again, it was a chat room, not even a blog. Yeah, so and that's so what we ahead. had back then. But so I just I wanted to, I wanted to reach people. I wanted to teach people. I wanted to share the information I had and have other people have a space to share their information, and anybody could go there and just learn. And I also just wanted to connect with people, mm -hmm. you know, to to unite people, and it was, it was a great run. Um, when I, it was a great run when I got to maybe two years into it, three years into it, I had uh, about 2,500 monthly readers every time I posted something. That's huge. That's, and that's awesome. So yeah, we're talking about half the profession at the time was visiting my website and, and it was really phenomenal. The reason I shut it down was, uh, frankly, it was a lesson that I learned ultimately, but I shut it down because the I worked for a private neuromonitoring company at the time that was acquired by a larger company. And I made the assumption that the larger company was going to make me shut it down. And I wanted to make that decision on my own terms rather than being told what to do because I'm not the type of person who likes to be told what to do, right? Yeah. So, so I shut it down. And I don't know to this day if they would have made me shut it down or not. Um, so I made this assumption, lesson learned, don't make assumptions about people or about companies, yeah. ask questions, clarification. But um, anyway, it's it, it no longer exists. I heard this on your podcast. And um, for those who haven't heard it, the stimulating stuff we're going to talk a lot more about um, is uh, it's 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 really good. I really enjoyed the first four episodes and I'm looking for what what's done, what's to come. Um, but digging in a level deeper, just a, just a little bit deeper. Um, why did you believe that the acquisition company was not going to be where they weren't going to be happy with it? Did you think they wanted to own it like it was part of uh, you as a professional working for the company they were buying? What, what made you believe they might have shut it down? Well, two reasons. First is that I got my readership largely from being edgy and controversial. And I put stuff on there that I wanted to 
drive conversation and bring in readers. And some of those things are opinions that other people shared, their opinions that I had, but they were controversial topics. And that's one thing that I think that could have been a problem. The other thing mm -hmm. is that you, you always think about these big companies and they have attorneys and they have, they're very careful about their image. And so I kind of made these assumptions that those two things would come together, the edginess, the controversy and the attorneys and the, um, the, the image and that they would kind of clash and there would be this desire for me to take it down. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's true or not. What I do know is that some of the things that I put on there years ago, I don't necessarily believe anymore or weren't representative of me so much as they were popular opinion. And so I don't necessarily want those things to be on the internet forever, even though they actually are, but yeah, yeah, I don't right. want them to be on the internet forever as representative of what I think forever. Yeah. So, I, I read uh, Joe Hartman's response to you. I think it was today on LinkedIn about, yes. um, about the, so, the look back. There's a website that's yes. got a look back of the whole history of the interweb, I like to say. I found it and I found all my web pages. No, you didn't. I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe Joe Hartman uh, told me this. And I went down this rabbit hole for about 10 minutes and then I had to stop yeah. looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The web lives in perpetuity, doesn't it? It's it crazy. Does, yeah. Well, you know what I'm going to say is that, uh, that your edginess is, um, it's, uh, I'm aware of it, having known, known you for a long time, but it's worked for you. Um, it's worked very well. It's not a persona. It's who you are, but it works for you, Rich. It's who you are. And I think people appreciate it because what, what comes with your edginess is one, it stimulates thought and conversations that otherwise may not be had to hear different sides of different, different, uh, issues. I think so too, because it draws people in to share their opinions and it, you, people who know me and are very close to me, they know that I'm a very balanced and objective person. And I see the entire world in gray, meaning that you know, nothing ever falls on one side or another for me. I always see both sides of an issue. And I tend to be, like I said, a very balanced and objective person, but that doesn't mean I'm going to, I'm not going to throw ideas or opinions out there to try to draw people in to share their ideas and opinions. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the way I operated when I ran the blog. Yeah. 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 Well, I like the term that, or the expression you use. I don't know if you've coined this yet, but uh, reach, teach, share and collaborate. That's uh, pretty much what you have to do when you're leading an organization like ASM. How did you get involved with ASM after you shut the blog down? And then what in the world made you sign up to lead the organization? It's a big job. Oh, I man. Those, yeah, those are big questions. So I don't remember how I got involved in the ASM in terms of being a member. It just was something that I did from the beginning of my career. In terms of becoming more involved at a higher level, I remember that I went up to Larry Wisbowski at a conference and I said, I would love to give a talk at one of these conferences and you're a leader in the field. Yeah. Can you point me in the right direction? Yeah. And talk, he did. Talk about an approachable and, guy. Uh, Wisbowski's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he pointed me in the right direction and I gave a talk the next conference or the next year. And I couldn't even tell you when that was exactly, but I know when it came to being involved in leadership, I think I ran for the board at some point. Mm -hmm. I was on the board for about a year and it was Jay Shills that came up to me at a conference um, 
in 2016, I believe. And he asked me if I would want to be president. And my response was no, because I thought two things. Mm -hmm. One was that the president's position is something that old people do, which I quickly realized that, wait, I am old. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Um, Not really, but go ahead. But the second thing was, more importantly, that I thought that I was probably too junior in my career to to yeah. run a society, to be a president, you know? And uh, Jay you, was you very expect, You expected to, to do something like that. You have to pay a little more dues. Exactly. Yeah. But I think the ASNM was looking for the next generation, a fresh face, somebody to come in with fresh ideas and share. And that's that's ultimately it aligned with what my vision was. And so that's why I decided to say, okay, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that, um, the, doing the blog writing to knowing that 2,500 regular readers were going to read your content. Um, the content's got to be, it's got to be accurate. It's got to be professional. It's got to contribute to the conversation, to the industry. You, that experience had to, make you better and prepare you for running an organization like ASM. I think it did. If nothing else, it, it gave me for lack of a better phrase, popularity or a name people knew me from the blog. And so I think it helped me to position me to run for the ASM board and then ultimately the presidency and, and, and win those positions. Mm -hmm. So, so you moved into the position leadership role. You did your year on the board. You ran for president. Was it contested back then when you ran? Yes. Okay. I mean, I ran against somebody. So you won the election. Um, what were your goals? And, and, and what were your goals going in? And what? How, how did those goals possibly change because of your experience once you got in the position? Sure. So really high level, I had a few goals. One of them was to refocus the society specifically on education and trying to be the best in the world at it. So focusing on our annual meetings, our symposia, webinar, guidelines, position statements. I didn't want the ASNM to be spread so thin, to be involved in things like lobbying and insurance reimbursement, coding or mm -hmm. licensure, et cetera. We we could, in my mind, support those efforts because there's other societies like Asset and ACNS that are better positioned to do those things. So let's collaborate with them. Let's be supporters of it, but not drivers of it. Yeah. So that was one big thing was to really focus on the mission of education. Yeah. Second thing was kind of boring, but to uh, update our bylaws. I started that project in August of 2018. Uh, that's still a work in progress, but it takes a long time to do that. One of the big important things that I wanted to do aside from refocus on education was to build or rebuild relationships with other societies. Yeah, um, those are important. Those, you, being involved absolutely. with asset, those are critically important. Right. And asset was a big one for me. So, you know, I'm a big believer in communication, coordination, collaboration. And as soon as I found out I was going to be president of the ASNM, 
I reached out to Connie Kubiak, who I knew at the time was going to overlap with me as president. And I struck up a great relationship with her and Susan Agostini and Cherie, who I already knew, but she became the treasurer. And it was, I was elated when I took the presidency and the three of them came to the ASNM and we got them a table front and center and they were there to support the ASNM and me because yeah. I had started this process of rebuilding this relationship, which had fallen out over time. Yeah. Well, that, that was if, a big, that was I a big may... deal. I remember it explicitly. Um, I remember because I close to Sheree, as everyone knows, and um, it was a big deal when you uh, jumped in the pond with us. It was, it was important to me. And I, you know, I try to do the same thing with the ACNS and just, you know, collaborate and work together. Yeah. Um, so the last big thing that, it, that was really important to me to accomplish as president was to embrace the diversity in this field. And I thought about that in two ways. One was educational backgrounds, right? Cause you have people that are, that, that range from, um, you know, maybe maybe they have a high school degree, maybe they have a college degree or graduate or or physician or PhD, whatever it is. We have a lot of diversity. We always have. So I said, let's embrace it. Let's bring people into the fold. The ASNM is for everybody. But the other side of the diversity thing was I wanted to understand better the people who were underrepresented. So and and find support for them. So I had this idea and it wasn't fully formed, but I had this idea of forming something that I called a task force on women and minorities. Okay. Um, and this is before the whole world started talking about woke and all that stuff, you know, sure. politics aside, I wanted to give, I wanted to understand their challenges and I wanted to help to find them mentors to support their career. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do with it though. So I recruited the genius of, Tara Stewart, who then transformed it into the task force on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really built it out from there with a, with a beautiful mission and vision that um, is, is still thriving today. So yeah. those things are really important to me. I know you asked what, what happened? Well, COVID happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, that was, that, was my, that was almost my next question. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so COVID came around right in the middle of my presidency. Um, a couple of a couple of good things came of that. The first is in February of 2020, we had our first virtual meeting, mm -hmm. which was right at the dawn of COVID. Nobody else was doing this. It was an experiment for us. Um, frankly, we got it at a cost of about 10% of what it would cost today given all the price increases that happened with COVID. But um, so that was a good thing. We were able to pivot to those virtual meetings. But there's a lot of things that that I wanted to do that kind of fell by the wayside. We weren't able to have an annual meeting um, later that year. So we weren't able to have a board meeting. So the bylaws kind of took a back seat. The, um, the, the, the building of the relationships was great, but some of the things that we were trying to do together with Asset and ACNS, kind of took a backseat yeah, for all of us. The priorities had to change. Gets, absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah. Par pardon me yeah, for interrupting. So, yeah. Go ahead. 
so yeah, a lot of it got sidelined and, and, you know, my presidency passed and I actually didn't want to run again for ASNM president. It, it, um, it, it was, it was something that I struggled with, but I thought, well, I kind of got gypped out of the, the opportunity to complete the things that I wanted to do as president. Mm -hmm. And maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing for me to run again. Um, and, try to have a full presidency this time around yeah so that's why i'm president-elect again okay good good no that makes perfect sense you talk about collaboration i thought that uh it was really exciting when you and jaime lopez and adam cornegay made the announcement about your collaboration for the why don't you talk about that document for a second and it sounds like an end product to what you wanted to start but it's the beginning product of what you wanted to start. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I can't take credit for this document. Um, in, in that moment when I stood there with with Jaime Lopez and Adam Cornegay, I was representing the ASNM as one of the four societies that came together. So it was ASNM, ASSET, ACNS, and the AANEM okay. came together. I think for the first time ever that four societies in neuromonitoring came together, or neurodiagnostics, and published a guideline such as this and it's it's qualifications for neurodiagnostic personnel it's in my mind it's a living document and it 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 certainly it took i think Jaime Lopez told me it took 11 or 13 years to develop yeah. and it's it's also a living document so i'm sure it will be updated but this is an example of how these societies have collaborated for many years and produced an end product that is beneficial to the entire community yeah yeah so okay. well i i personally really like that document cuz it gives some definition and what i felt like it did was build a ladder um for neurodiagnostics there's an entry point um, there are stepping stones or, or rungs to get you almost anywhere that you want to go in this con in this career. I'm not sure if that was the intent of it, but that's how I see it, and I think it's um, wonderful for for anyone in neurodiagnostics just to have that. I think so too. I, I I think that there's also room for improvement there. Like I said, it's a living document, mm -hmm. and it's intended to be improved over time. It, nothing is going to be perfect the first time around. No guideline ever is, and it's not perfect the second or the third or the fourth. That's why it's a living document. Right. So I think it will continue to improve over time, but it does a great service to the neurodiagnostic field by, as you said, creating that ladder and creating some form of consistency and clarity around what different roles mean. Yeah. So it's a great win. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was excellent. What was your number one best accomplishment during your first presidency? Honestly, I think it was the collaboration and just, just building that bridge again with other societies, because even though in the background, they were working on this qualifications guideline, there wasn't much communication that was happening. And I, it was really important to me to just create those relationships and start to rebuild and have a, an agreement that we are a community and we are all focused on the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we also have different places where we focus as individual societies, but 
you know, we call each other sister societies or brother societies, whatever it is, we're family. Yeah. And that's, I think, the most important thing to me that stands out to what I was able to accomplish. Yeah. I remember you were coming to asset meetings, I think, before your ASM presidency, right? That's right, right? Yes. I've been coming to asset for, I couldn't even tell you for how long. I think it's probably been about 10 years now. Yeah, that, that, that's what I would have guessed. So, um, so, you, so you were a member of ASM, obviously heavily involved, and a member of Asset. Is ASM for PhDs and audiology only? No, definitely not. It's for anybody who has an interest in neuromonitoring, and that goes back to the diversity that I spoke about before. Mm-hmm. So, the ASM was founded by. Um, a surgeon and people who were PhDs and audiologists. But if if you go back 40 years to when the ASNM was founded at the time, there was only really two types of neuromonitoring that were happening. Mm-hmm. There was neuromonitoring in vascular cases, which was EEG. Yeah. Correct. And there yeah. was neuromonitoring in yeah, and there was neuromonitoring in spine and ENT cases. And those two communities didn't know each other existed, I don't think. Right. So the people who founded neuromonitoring as it's used in spine and ENT were PhDs, audiologists, surgeons, and the people who founded the neuromonitoring and vascular were the everybody from the EEG world. And so the ASNM was founded by the people who were in that world. But over time, the the number of people from various backgrounds that were involved in what neuromonitoring became today changed and so entered the diversity and today we have people from all backgrounds and the only thing that I shouldn't say the only thing the one thing that they definitely have in common is that they work in neuromonitoring or they work closely to it and they love it and want to learn more about it yeah well, that's that's great. The um, ASNM is open to everybody. It's open to the CNMs. It's open to the neuromonitors that are working towards their CNM. So, if they're a member of Asset, why should they participate with ASNM? Well, um, I think there's a couple of different ways to think about it. One is that if it's it's the community, right? So, if you um, want to be a part of the larger diagnostics community and your world includes EEG and nerve conduction and neuromonitoring, then you'd want to be in a much more variable audience. If you, and and I guess what goes along with that is, is that if you go to an asset meeting, there's going to be a track for neuromonitoring, there's going to be a track for for EEG, and you can jump between those. If you go to the ASNM, there's going to be a track that's uh, probably more basic and one that's more advanced, and you can jump between those. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have an entire session, maybe three days long, that is entirely devoted to neuromonitoring. Okay. So you can really focus on that specific thing and and get a lot more information. Yeah. Uh, um, I think the other thing is that it it's it's a different way to think about it. So if if you just focus on the finance, right, you're going to pay less money to join asset than you will ASNM. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And there are things that you're going to pay for in asset if you want to participate in them, like a webinar, for example. Right. In the ASM, if you join and you you you're gonna pay more money, you get six free webinars a year, and that's free CEUs that you can use toward your toward your CNIM renewal. And there's also a backlog of you, education. Yeah, you said six the, free webinars come with your membership at ASNM. Right. That's and huge. there's a backlog of webinars too that are available online that you can also watch those for CEUs too. And they're all free. In so, addition to the six or? Correct. So yeah. it's a, it's a li six are a live. Library. Okay, six live correct. and uh, unlimited of a library. Correct. I know CEUs are, they're not, they don't come cheap. Um, I don't know right. what, how many are required for, well, how many are required to maintain your CNIM? Oh man, I don't know. I renewed a couple of years ago. The thing is when you go to as many conferences as I do and you do as much continuing education as I do, I have so many, I just send them my transcript and I know that I have 10 times what I need. So I don't yeah. really pay attention to the numbers like I should. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's good, and and this is not a jab. I a big, huge asset fan, um, huge AS and M fan. Um, but the uh, the asset doesn't provide. Um, they provide a lot of value and a lot of resources and a lot of reasonably priced uh, educational programs. Um, their their bookstore is amazing. Um, just their oh, their staff it's is just, amazing. Yeah, it's it uh, is just two ways of doing the same thing, and there's nothing wrong with asset there's nothing wrong with ace and they just have different models for how they price things but yeah. Yeah. um you know i look i support anybody who does continuing education really like it's so important to to advance your knowledge in your career yeah. and i don't fault anybody for wherever they go to get it as long as they're participating yeah yeah um patient i, I I've, I've actually seen i've seen you speak on a handful of times um you know, I don't attend conferences. I, I attend conferences to vend. I don't attend conferences to um for educational purposes. But in uh, wrap-ups, uh, maybe business meetings, I might be shooting for the society. I get to hear you hear you speak, and it come it comes through loud and clear. I, I've watched you stand up there and say, "Walk up to the physician. Don't be afraid of the surgeon. Get in, get up. Walk up to them." Ask them about the procedure. Ask them how they thought it went. Ask them what they would think if it were done, if you all took a different route. But don't be afraid to ask the probing questions. Be a part of the team and make yourself better after every, after or before every surgery. Even have the conversation. You talked about having these conversations with the surgeon before the surgery. Um, and listening to your podcast, my gosh, the, the red hat thing. I can, I can see why it intimidates people from walking up and having the conversation with a person that is supposed to be a leader of their team. A hundred percent. The red hat and paper scrubs thing I've been fighting for years to no avail. Um, it, it's worked for me independently as an individual. When I go into a facility and I say, we're not going to wear this and here's why they listen. But on a larger scale, it doesn't work. And it's been a big challenge for people. And if you think about it, you're, you're put in this, what a lot of people, it's it's not just me. A lot of people think it looks like a clown costume, right? And it says visitor across the chest and mm -hmm. you are just made to feel like you're not part of the team. And if you think about the psychology of that, 
if you don't feel like you're part of the team, then how can you be expected to participate as part of the team to go out of your way to, to be a member of the team that is not accepting you and frankly, to speak up on behalf of the patient, even though that's that's your job and that's what you have to do at the end of the day, it's a psychological barrier that doesn't need to exist yeah. to do those things. And it's really a shame. I think it only hurts neuromonitoring. It makes people feel marginalized as not part of the team. And frankly, they walk into the facility and everybody looks at them like they don't belong. And if you're treated like that every day, it's makes the job so much more challenging and people just don't deserve that. They don't need it. Okay. So before this is solved on the national level with whatever actions that we could discuss that you could, you could take in your next presidency, what do you tell our listener who's having that challenge every single day? They had it yesterday. They're going to have it tomorrow. They're going to have it for the next six months. what, what, What approach would you give them to overcome that issue? Well, I think that there's one of those places where I'm going to get edgy, right? I think a lot of this starts with companies who want to sign contracts with hospitals at all costs. We live in a world of neuromonitoring where it's a zero-sum game. If you want to get business, you have to steal it from somebody else. And the only way to do that is to do it by being cheaper. Yeah. And hospitals don't understand neuromonitoring. They understand a line item on a spreadsheet that needs to be reduced to a lower risk cost. Risk management doesn't make I, I know it makes sense. They have risk management departments, but it doesn't, that doesn't sell it. Well, they're not involved in the decision-making. In fact, they don't get involved until something really bad goes wrong. Um, you know, the, it's usually somebody who works in, in resource management, um, in, 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 in the supply chain mm-hmm. who is making the decision as to, who, which, which company comes in to perform their neuromonitoring and the people who are generally going in to sign those contracts, whether they're business development, they're seasoned salespeople, or they're small mom and pop companies, they just want to close the account. So they're not going to make a lot of waves, but a big wave that I think there's lots of waves that need to be made. Like I say, everybody should have scrubs. Everybody should have badges. Everybody should have access to the patients and their records and be there as a member of the team. Yeah. But when it comes to this whole paper scrubs thing, it's just not a feather that anybody wants to ruffle. And that's unfortunate. But at the beginning of a contract, you know, part of the negotiation should be our people will not wear this mm-hmm. because we're here to provide patient care. We're not here to sell supplies. Right. Right. No one's counting implants. Um, Right. But your question is for the people on the ground who are dealing with this every day. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest with you. I think if it were an easy answer, there would be a lot less people who are wearing these things uh, today. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So what about on a national level? What do you think? um, So assets uh, taking more action this year is kind of renewing some old programs, uh, advocacy and the advocacy is on the carpeted areas of the hospital. Getting to getting to the the uh, uh, and it's and it's based around credentialing, um, have, supporting the education, supporting getting their people credentialed, supporting um, making them better caregivers for better patient outcomes. Um, 
they're building a program is is that part of the answer is there what what approach could ASNM if ASNM even wants to be involved in advocacy um what are your thoughts around that rich well i i don't know if i'm in a position to speak uh on behalf of the ASNM and whatever advocacy endeavors are going on at, at the moment me, i do let know me that when it. i could was president could it be a priority of yours as president? Well, you know, I tried to make it a priority before, and we went to the Joint Commission and tried to make it a patient safety issue and made a really good argument for it. And the Joint Commission looked at it and said, eh, it's not our thing. So I don't know what the next step is. You know, there are other societies out there, like uh, healthcare executive societies, risk management societies that that are hospitals, risk management folks who are part of that society, maybe getting in front of them and explaining the problem mm -hmm. might be helpful. That I don't think has been done yet. Um, but beyond that, it it's it's not so and this is why we're such this is why we're such good collaborators, right? The ASM is a small society mm -hmm. and we have uh, limited resources. But we would very much work with Asset and support Asset, who has a much larger footprint and is able to touch more facilities and more people mm. in an endeavor like that. And I think that would be a great collaboration just because, and, and this is, you know, this is also a good aspect of my personality, just because it failed in the past doesn't mean we don't keep trying. And yeah. so we failed with Joint Commission. They didn't care okay, we barked up the wrong tree, but that doesn't mean that we stop barking up trees. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. So um, i tell you what, let's, uh, we're, you and I aren't going to solve the world in this one podcast, um, not even a small portion of the neuromonitoring world. So um, let's talk about something really positive. I understand that you have recently won the Founders Award from the ASNM. How, tell, tell me about that. What, what exactly is the award? What does it represent, and how did you earn it? Oh man. Well, it's it's a new award that I think it was rolled out uh, a couple of years ago and I was I was the first to win it. It's something that you have to be nominated for. It it recognizes an ASNM member who, who for at least 10 years has a well-documented career in neuromonitoring mm -hmm. and has demonstrated contributions to ASNM through membership committee work, um, other distinguished work, and in the field of neuromonitoring in general through like literature, publications, patient care, other forms of innovation. And it was, it was a great honor for me yeah. to, to win that award. How, how, help me help me out. How does it differ from a fellowship? I guess I would think of it as a a fellowship shows that you have uh, participated in the field and an ASNM. This is kind of a step higher, like a, a a more of a more of a midlife achievement award. I guess you know our biggest award is is the Rich Brown Award, and that was just awarded to Jay Shills. And that's like a lifetime achievement award. I think this is an award that shows that 
you know, in, in kind of the middle of your career, you've done a lot of great things. You contributed to the ASNM, you contributed to neuromonitoring in general in really big ways. And I, I was surprised that I won it. I can think of probably 10 people off the top of my head that I think would probably be uh, just as good or, or better. Hmm. Uh, but I guess, you know, I just happened to be nominated this year and maybe lucky enough that nobody else was. So thank, thankful know. to the person who nominated <laughs> me and to the committee of people who reviewed uh, it. So, so when, when you're talking about 10, pe- 10 people you think that could have, could have earned it uh, before you, I, I think there's probably a few hundred that I have met oh, that would yeah. absolutely support uh, choosing you as the first. So it's, uh, I'll let you, I'll oh, let you believe, I'll let you believe that there's 10 others, but I know <laughs> a lot more will support you as number one. So congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, let's talk about stimulating stuff. Um, you know, I've heard, uh, all, is it four episodes or am I behind an episode? I know I've listened to four. No, there's four. Yeah. As of today, uh, of the recording, there's four full length episodes. And then I had a couple of trailers that I did just like yeah. kind of set the stage for it. Yeah. So far, so good. I love it. Um, what's going on? Let's talk about it. Thank you. So, so the the overall goal is to again same thing i do with my blog right unite people bring people together and also have conversations that maybe other people aren't having mm-hmm. either about the field or just about individual experiences you know i talked to somebody the other day who you know walked me through a day in their life and talk to me about what it's like being a single mom raising kids and having this schedule of you don't know when you're going to be on call. You don't know your, your hours are unpredictable. Your cases are unpredictable and you're, you know, you're living this life. And I just want to get different people's experiences and share and build this kind of community of people um, through mostly through the course of, of, interviews like like you and I are doing here yeah the first four episodes were more about it was a global topic of what's happening in neuromonitoring and what are the big challenges that people like executive leaders and neurologists and uh, neuromonitorists are facing in the world of neuromonitoring and then share uh, in each episode some of their individual perspectives and provide some advice or information and frankly uh, as i i think i said today to joe hartman i was very carefully strategically controversial because i wanted to um, say things that would get people talking not necessarily incorrect maybe just you know a little exaggerated here or there um and get people talking what um, did did joe say facts are boring yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a good line. I like that. But, you know, for for example, I said something like, well, the majority of people out there are um, marginalized uh, when they walk into the OR and they're yelled at by surgeons. That's not true. We, we know it's not the majority of people. We definitely know it happens and we definitely know it's a problem. But, you know, I, I think it's great because people write to me and they're going to challenge me on this and they're going to keep me honest. And but them writing to me and challenging me and keeping me honest is actually starting the conversation that I wanted to start, which is exactly what I wanted to to do 
with this podcast. I am not the expert on the world of neuromonitoring. I don't think anybody is, but um, I don't know. I bought a microphone and I figure I might as well um, talk to people and see if they'll talk back. And so far it seems to be working. I've had, it, it's been up for a week and I've had several hundred uh, listens. So, so it's great. Yeah. 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 I've uh, it, it's entertaining too. I think you've done a great job of keeping your listeners engaged. Yeah, and you know, I, I call it stimulating stuff because it's supposed to be this double entendre. Like, you know, that's what we do in neuromonitoring. We stimulate, but it's also supposed to be stimulating topics of conversation. But um, that doesn't mean that it necessarily will be only neuromonitoring. I branded it as a neuromonitoring podcast, but I would love to introduce people in neuromonitoring to other avenues or other aspects of neurodiagnostics. Mm -hmm. And you know, invite people who are EEGers or nerve conduction uh, folks to come and share uh, information about their world. And I also have a few people lined up that are, have nothing at all to do with neuromonitoring, but they just have really interesting backgrounds or jobs or stories that might be fun to listen to yeah. down the line. I, I want to focus on the neuro stuff for now, but yeah, that that's, fun. that's the goal. So I, I think that um, any new hire should at least listen to the first four episodes. Um, if I were getting into neuromonitoring, there's nothing better. There's nothing better in life or any job or any challenge is having very clearly set expectations. I used to tell young sales reps if they didn't set the expectations clearly, they're going. I'd much rather. I would much rather tell someone I can't do something and have them be disappointed, than tell them I can do something I can't and have them be dissatisfied. So mm -hmm. expectations are everything. And uh, you give a, a really good um, look into what the daily life as a neuromonitorist is. What's your, what's your long-term goal for the show? You know, aside from just building a community and connecting with people, uh, I don't know. I kind of want to see where it goes. I, I know it sounds crazy to start a podcast with no end goal, you know, like, you know, you, you start it, you start a company and, you know, you, you already designed your exit strategy. I don't have an exit strategy. Um, I don't have a long-term goal aside from just building a community, uh, getting people talking. It's, it's like, it's like that communication collaboration, yeah. um, coordination thing that I said before, let's, let's just all, let's all get together and, and talk about the interesting stuff. Yeah. Reach, teach and share. You know, when we when you were talk when you were talking about the uh, the blog, and you're talking about reach, teaching, and sharing, it's um that that that's what this podcast is for. There's having done some consulting work with Cerise, the the brains behind behind the uh, consulting, the cl all the clinical stuff that she can help people with. But um, I'm close to it with her on the administrative side, and what I'm learning is is that um, the experience that someone has in an academic center is very, very different from the experience someone has in a two EEG machine rural hospital um, with a reporting channel to an RT that reports to cardiology because no one where to put, knew where to put either one of them. Um, mm -hmm. So to be able, when you were talking about getting the sharing, the teaching, the reaching, um, that's what this podcast is trying to do. Just trying to reach people with people like you with the experience and the knowledge and the, the know-how and hopefully leaving someone with something a little bit, a little bit of something that they didn't know before.
that can help make them a better neurodiagnostic professional. I love it. And, and um, so honored and happy that you invited me to contribute. So appreciate it. So Rich, leading before we wrap up, I want to ask you one more thing about stimulating stuff. Where do they find you? Well, it's available on Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Music, Google, and all of those distribute to most places where you can find uh, where you find your podcasts. So any one of those resources, uh, if you just go onto Amazon and you search uh, Stimulating Stuff Podcast, it's there. If you go on Spotify, it's there. Yep. Uh, you'll see my ugly mug and it says Stimulating Stuff and Neuromonitoring Podcast with Rich Vogel. All right. Well, Rich, I appreciate you coming on the show, and um, I'm excited to hear more about stimulating stuff. I know I'll see you next week in Orlando for the Asset Annual Conference, and um, hopefully we'll catch up with you at ASNM. Watch your uh, watch your swearing, swearing in the second time, huh? Yeah, I can't wait for the conference uh, in Orlando next, next week, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody there. All right. Well, thank you, brother. Appreciate you coming on the show. It's an honor. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Jason Meyer for The Neuropod, the podcast for neurodiagnostic professionals.